0: Church, I'm going to ask you to turn to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, in your copies of God's Word. As we just begin to wade into our second complete book together, of course we walked through Philippians uh, over the course of a couple of months, and now we're looking at James. And I need to confess to you um, my, my inadequacy. Uh, My weakness, that I don't have all of the right words to say at the right moment when we're talking about a topic like trials and sufferings. You know, at different times when I was in seminary, I don't know, perhaps you're familiar with Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. At different times in seminary, I heard both. That is not what you say to someone who's right in the midst of suffering. And then I also heard that is an incredibly comforting verse to say to someone who is in the midst of suffering. The reality is it's so difficult to know what to say to someone when they're right in the midst of the throes of trial and suffering. You can say one verse to them one day and it would just be this this sea of solace and comfort. And then the next day it might seem trite, like you're just kind of glossing over what they're going through. I experience this time, during times uh, when I'm preaching funerals or or other things when people are when I'm counseling people and they've experienced loss or disappointment. So I just want to present myself to you as a as a person who has feet of clay. I don't have all of the right answers. There might be things that I might say during the sermon that might today seem to you comforting, or might today seem to you like I'm I just don't know. a a a, a slight bit of what you're going through i'm just going to ask you to give me a little grace and a little patience i'm going to ask you to to allow the word of god to to do its work and i'm going to ask the lord today to give me the things to say and and to um just kind of strike from my mind the things that maybe i shouldn't say but the reality is this we are all walking either toward a trial away from a trial, or we're right in the midst of one. And the words that I say today are probably going to hit people who are in every single category. But this is important because we do live in a Genesis 3 world. No one escapes trouble. No one escapes trial. No one escapes disappointment. None of us get out of this thing alive, as has been said. The reality is that for believers... And for unbelievers, hard times come. And so the question is not, will we have trouble? The question is, does our trouble make any sense? Does our trouble have any meaning? Is there any redeeming value behind it? Is there any good that can be brought out of it? That's the question. And I would submit to you as humbly as I can that if God is real and is who he says he is, our trials, our troubles, have meaning and purpose, and can be used for some good. But if God is not real, or if he is not who he says he is, then our trials are ultimately meaningless, and our tears will just be wasted. And so what I want to to try to do is is to push us away from the temptation to think, that a good reason to follow God is to avoid trials. Friends, following God will many, many times not help you avoid trouble. There is some trouble that you will avoid because, after all, how can a a young man keep his way pure? By, By... by living it according to your word, as it's paraphrase the scriptures, by hiding your word in my heart. So there will be troubles that we don't bring on ourselves if we follow Christ. But we live in a in a Genesis 3 world that's broken. We're not immune to the things that happen, the tragedies that occur. And so following God to, to get out of that is actually a really bad idea. Because some of the most faithful Some of the most Christ-loving people that I have known have had to walk through some of the darkest valleys that I could possibly describe. The question is not, will we have trouble? Jesus told us that. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Before he went to the cross, which was a great display of trouble. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So I've entitled the sermon The End of Your Trial. The end of your trial. And I'm actually doing a little bit of a play on words here because the word end has a couple of different meanings. Let me explain. You might could think about the end of a ball game. We all know when that happens, right? When the buzzer sounds. That's the end of a ball game, okay? It's the conclusion of something. This is not what I'm talking about when I say the end of your trial. I'm not saying that the finish line of your trial. I'm not saying the conclusion of it. There's another meaning for the word end, and it means goal or purpose. Um, there's a study of of in philosophy called teleology. It's it's what is the purpose, what is the goal of something, the telos, the 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 um, the consummation of it. In other words, what is the purpose or the meaning or the value behind something? What is the end of something? You might think of a college student trying to, to you know, burn the midnight oil, getting through, uh, pulling an all-nighter just before finals. Why? Because the end of their struggle is a reward. The goal of their struggle is a reward. You might think of a soldier who, even though he knows he might lose his life, he believes that his efforts have a good end. You've heard of people say the ends justify the means sometimes. Of course, we don't, we don't believe that as, as Christians. But the ends, in other words, the goals justify how you get there. That's the second meaning of the word end, the goal, the purpose. What is the, the destination that we're trying to arrive at? The Bible frequently uses the word end in this second way, the goal, the, the destination, the arrival point. Looking to the the goal or purpose of something is often seen in the Bible as the reason why we can endure hardship. Setting our gaze on the goal makes the tough times worth it. I want to tell you a story about Horatio Spafford. Um, You might know this story, and if you do, just indulge me for a moment. But Horatio Spafford was a Chicago lawyer who lived in Chicago in the 1800s. He was an attorney, a very successful attorney. He was a senior partner. He was one of three partners in his law firm. And he was also an elder, which is just another word for pastor or leader, in his Presbyterian church. Presbyterians have elders. Many Baptist churches have elders. But he was an elder in his Presbyterian church. I assume a lay elder, which just means he didn't get paid for being an elder. He had an occupation outside of the church. He and his wife, Anna were in fact great friends with the evangelist Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. Many of you might be familiar with him. He was, of course, also from Chicago. Um, Horatio was quite successful, and in the spring of 1871, he decided to try to make – Make uh, maximize his success. He decided it seems like a good thing to do. Chicago's growing. Let's invest in some real estate on the north side of Chicago. So in the spring of 1871, that's what he did. He used much of his savings and he invested in real estate. But as fate would have it, as Providence would have it, 1871 was a really bad year to be investing in real estate. Because in October... Of 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago reduced much of the city to rubble and ashes. He lost most of his investment. The very town that he, is in, that he and his family lived in was, was humbled, was, was raised to the ground. It was devastated. They lost much of their livelihoods. A couple years later, he and his family planned a vacation to Europe. You can imagine how this might have been something that the family could look forward to—a uh, vacation to Europe. They were actually even going to try to uh, go through England at the same time that their friend D. L. Moody was going to be preaching in England, and so they were coordinating their plans. But some some last-minute business uh, uh, obligations kept Dwight—I'm uh, D- sorry—kept Horatio Spafford behind in Chicago. He had to tend to some business, some things that arose actually from the fire. So he said to Anna, his wife. And his four daughters, he said, you go on. You go ahead and get on the boat. I'll meet you. I'll follow you shortly thereafter. And so Anna Spafford and their four daughters, four young daughters, boarded a ship called the Ville du Havre, And they set across the Atlantic Ocean to go to Europe. But on the morning of November 22nd, 1873, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, about 2 a.m., halfway across the Atlantic, Something went terribly, terribly wrong. There was another ship called the Lock Arn, and about two o'clock in the morning, its captain saw the Ville du Havre, and they were they were dangerously close. Middle of the night, you can imagine, no lights out, out on the open seas. Both captains ported their helms, but both both captains tried to turn their boats away, but it was too little, too late. And the Vilduab was almost broken completely in half. It began to sink immediately. The 313 passengers on this boat, they crowded the decks. They began to try to, to rest free the lifeboats from on top of the decks. But you see, these were wooden lifeboats. They had just recently been painted. And the paint had them stuck fast to the, to the decks. Some of them were able to get free. But about only 61 people, 61 of the passengers, were saved that early morning in 1873. When she arrived in England, Anna sent her husband Horatio a telegram. No doubt he had already heard of the tragedy on the sea. She sent him a telegram, and it only said two words saved alone. Horatio sailed to England. To rejoin his wife. And on the voyage over there. Mourning the loss of his four little girls. He wrote the words. To it is well. The song that we just sang. Though Satan should buffet. Though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. That the Lord has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, the question is not, will we have trouble? The question is, does the trouble have any meaning? Is there a God over the trouble? And I am here to do my best to show from the book of James that the answer to that question is yes. The answer is yes. Would you read with me in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Scriptures say this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Would you pray with me? God, as we approach your word, we are reminded of the fact that your word is meant to do surgery in our hearts. It's meant to do the work that you would have done in our hearts. And so I pray that today, no matter where whether we are unknowingly heading toward a trial, whether we are in the throes of one right now or whether we are walking out of the forest of darkness, of some trial or suffering, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you and that at the end of our trial that we would see that there is an end, there is a purpose, there is a goal, there's a destination, there's a, there's a meaning behind our trials and that we would see that you're better and that we can commit ourselves to your loving care. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Here's my first point that I hope to, to be able to distill from these two verses, or these three verses. It says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now we know from our background last Sunday that the believers that James is writing to, he was he's kind of like the former pastor of this congregation. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but now because of persecution, this church has been scattered. So it's like a, a flock that's been scattered, and James is writing a letter to them, hoping to give them some kind of encouragement. We know that they are undergoing trials of their own. They're outside of their familiar city. They're separated from all of their familiar social fabric. That binds them together. They were being taken advantage of by the rich people who owned the land that they were now living in. Living in a culture that doesn't understand their way of life and is actually willing to persecute them for their Christian faith. But James, he he does this. He backs the camera up. He, He zooms out a little bit and emphasizes to them this. That the nature of the trial is not the point. The kind of trial that you're walking through is not the point. Rather, it's the God over the trial who is the point. Can he be trusted? Is he doing anything good out of this terrible situation? We, we see that he does this by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's saying that the specific thing that you're walking through right now is not the issue at hand. And this should be a great hope to us because we could come to the book of James and we could read the first chapter and say to ourselves, wait a second. I'm not living in the first century. I'm not ethnically Jewish. I haven't been displaced from my home. I'm not being persecuted for my faith. I'm not this or that. How could I possibly relate to these people? But James says it's not the fact that you're walking through the exact kind of trial that the people here from the church in Jerusalem are walking through. He's saying that God intends to use whatever kind of trial you're walking through. God uses it all. He uses trials of various kinds. So whatever it is that you're having to endure, we can say this. I don't know when the finish line will be. I don't know when the buzzer will ring on this ballgame. But I can say this, that God intends to redeem it. God intends to use it all. This should be a great encouragement to us. How do we apply this? I think we can say this. What do we do with this knowledge, this knowledge that God intends to use our trials? In the midst of trial, here's what I would suggest. We need to make sure that we keep the character of God in front of us. We need to make sure we keep the character of who God is in front of us. Here's why. When we walk through trial, when we walk through suffering or hardship, it's like taking a step into the funny house at the fair. Where there's all those mirrors that distort reality. They make some things look tall that are not. They make some things look short. Some things look skinny. Some things look fat. In other words, we're tempted in the midst of trial. When we're walking through the mist of everything and we're like in the fog of war. We're tempted to see a distorted picture of God. We're tempted to wonder, God, are you punishing me? God, are are you angry with me? God, what what have I done to deserve this? But let, let me search my heart and find out what what it is that I've done, so that maybe if I could just get my life right, I could get out of this trial. And and friends, I, I got to be careful here because it is true that God disciplines those He loves. I think that sometimes God can punish us when we're walking through when we're walking in unrepentant sin out of, out of grace. He certainly did this in the Old Testament to keep His people back. From from destruction, he sent, them into, he sent them into exile. He did all kinds of things. But I would say this to you that, that typically, if you're a believer who's seeking to follow the Lord, who's doing your, your God's honest best to, to follow Him and to honor Him with your life, when you walk through a trial, it's probably not because God is angry with you and punishing you many times. It's probably not The first stop that you should take. Really, many of our trials come into our lives because we live in a broken world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And so trials are not necessarily punishment. Of course, they they can be, but trials are not necessarily punishment. And here's why I say this. Because Christianity is not a rewards program. Christianity is not something that we enter into hoping that if we just kind of do the right things and be the right kind of person that God will give us the life that we want. Christianity is not a rewards program. It's a path of sanctification. And at the end of the tunnel that you're walking through and at the end of your trial, at the end of whatever joy you're having, at the end of all of it, there's not some other prize like a comfortable retirement or Whatever else. The end of the Christian life, the goal, the purpose, the the destination of the Christian life is at the end of that tunnel. Jesus is there. And he's enough. And he's the treasure. And he is the goal. So, I would say, don't lose heart. God hasn't changed. He isn't necessarily disappointed with you. He isn't necessarily judging you. He could just be purifying you. He could just be making you like Jesus. Why? Because that's what he's promised that he will do in his word. And so submit yourself to him, commit your your life to him, and trust him that even in the dark days, he is not far off. We have to preach to ourselves the character of God, and if we can get at least that part right, if we can rehearse to ourselves every morning, preach to ourselves what is true of God, reminding ourselves of what he's like from the scriptures. If we can at least get that part right, it might not get us out of the, of the trouble, but it will do this. It will bring comfort and it will help us to see the purpose behind the pain. It'll help us to look through the funny house. It'll help us to look through the fog of war and say, you know what? I don't know why God is doing this but I know God and I know his character and I know that even when I can't see his hand I can I can trust his heart. I hope that that is comforting to you. A few truths about God's character that might be comforting in the midst of trial are this. God is sovereign. In other words, nothing that comes into our lives has, has escaped his notice, has escaped his, even his permission. God is in the heavens, it says in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is good, says this. How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Thirdly, God will comfort, says this. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. If you feel like a bruised reed, you know what a bruised reed is, one that hasn't quite snapped, but it's got a weak spot. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick, you can you can imagine a candle just trying to, to, to get the you know the the wick is almost down at the nub and, and, and the oxygen is trying to you know create just the right mixture, it's about to go out, and it says that if that's what you feel like, God is not gonna come with two wetting fingers and just crush you. It's not his nature. It's not who he is. He will comfort you. And and lastly, God understands. Of course we know this. Jesus himself, the scriptures say of him in Hebrews, he's not a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He himself took on flesh. He endured the pains and the hardships of life himself. And so he can say with all the merit badges like, I've been there, done that. I got the t-shirt. He says, I know what it's like to walk through hardship because I wanted to so identify with you that I myself took on flesh and walked as a human and was poor and often didn't have anywhere to lay my head. I have said these things to you, that, you uh, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. So that's the first point. The first point is God intends to use it all. He will use it all. The second point is this, the end of. Of course, here's my play on words again. The end of our trials. What We need to zoom the camera out again. What is the point of our lives? Why have we been placed here? Has God simply created a world to give us so that people can maximize their happiness and just uh, engage in whatever they want that, that makes them happy? Or is there a greater purpose to our lives? The scriptures say that he died for all so that those who... Who know him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for their sake was raised. And so the purpose of our lives is not for self. The purpose of our lives is to be turned outward toward the glory of God. So that God's fame can spread across the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. We've been placed here to make that happen in our own lives. We've been placed here to glorify God with our lives. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is one of those verses that can, if we don't understand it, if we don't read it in light of the rest of the Bible, it can seem like God is saying that what we're going through is small. It's not what he's trying to say. But listen, I'll try try my best to explain this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. John Piper has said, not only is your affliction light in comparison to eternity, not only is it momentary, but it is doing something. It's producing something in you. It's preparing an eternal weight of glory. Excuse me. So we can rest and we can rejoice knowing that the, the testing of our faith It doesn't doesn't mean that God doesn't know what's in our hearts. It means that that he's using it to to purify what is in us, that the faith that is in us, God wants to purify. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, when your faith gets tested, it's not for no purpose. There is an end. There's a purpose. There's a meaning to produce steadfastness in us. There is a for statement here at the beginning of verse 30. For, this is why we can count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Friends, this is what makes rejoicing make sense. We can rejoice in our trials because we know that there's a God behind them who has a greater purpose for them. It says this in first Peter 5, 1 5 through 7 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing the, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire it may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in other words there's a there's a telos. There's, a, there's an end. There's a, there's a goal for every trial that comes into our lives. And friends, this is what makes, for the Christian, we have a different understanding of pain. We know, as we said earlier, that because we live in a broken world, everyone, believers and unbelievers, will experience pain. But the world thinks of pain as simply something to be avoided. The world says pain is something that should be escaped through whatever means necessary. That's why people run to the drink and people run to the substance and people run to the Internet, to the dark recesses of the Internet, trying to find something that might alleviate their pain. So while the world thinks of pain as something to be avoided, we think of it as something that God can use to make us more like Jesus, which is actually the point of our lives. You see, the world looks at pain like a stab wound meant to harm. And and done, uh, committed by some kind of dark and shadowy mugger. But believers understand pain like a scalpel. In the hands of the good doctor, we are wounded that we might be healed. See, God desires to use all of our pain for our good and for his glory. And we can rest assured that he will do that. Romans 5 verses 2 through 4 say this. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's why we rejoice, because we know that it's not going to be wasted. It's going to do something. God is going to use it to, to produce some good out of it. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reality is this. If your ultimate kingdom, if your ultimate treasure is made and found in another world, it's going to take some endurance to walk through this one. Okay? But we know that at the end there is something better. So, friends, Christianity is at the same time the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. It's easy because Jesus has done it all. We get to rest in his finished work. But it's hard because we know that we're headed for a feast. We're headed for a feast at the end. But between here and there, we've been promised that there will be some trouble. And so we need for God to produce endurance in us so that we hold fast to Christ. For all of our days so that we don't tap out when things become difficult. Thank God that he will not leave us by ourselves. He will produce in us what's needed to honor him and to make it all the way home. He has promised that he will be with us. I want to read to you from Psalm 119. It says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. He says this, it was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your decrees it was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your decrees. You know, there was a period of time, and I, I, I even hesitate to use examples because if I give an example of suffering in my life, it might it might be so small compared to what you've walked through. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to do the suffering Olympics, okay? I'm not trying to get gold medal here. There was a time in mine and Whitney's lives when. Um, when we, we really, really wanted to have children. And of course you know that the Lord has blessed us with two children now. But there was a period of years where we had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And once you get to so many of those, you know the doctors begin to tell you this, doesn't, this isn't looking like a one-off anymore. This is looking like uh, there's, there's, there's a reason that it's not ever going to happen. You know what we found during that season? We found that it became very easy to weep with those who weep. God had opened up to us a world of pain that we had never known before. And so it made our hearts go out to other people who were walking through a similar kind of pain. God does that, right? It became easy to weep with those who weep. But it became difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. It became difficult to watch other people have all of their dreams come true. It became difficult to watch other people succeed where we seem to be suffering. Now, with the perspective of a few years, these words make a little more sense. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. If you want to go into Jesus' schoolhouse, be be ready. Because many of the lessons don't come through cold, detached lessons like lectures. Lectures. They come through the schoolhouse of pain, but on the other side of that pain, if you see through the funny house and if you see through the fog of war, there is a God on the other side of it who, even if he doesn't make everything right, he's still good and he will be with you on the other side of it. Does that make sense? I hope so. The last little subpoint is called perfect and complete. It says this in verse 4 And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, if I were to stop the sermon right now, it would be an incomplete sermon, because I would have left you thinking that the only reason God gives you trials is to give you more endurance, right? But endurance is not the point, endurance is not the final goal. In other words, the the, the goal of the Christian life is not simply just to learn how to develop a stiff upper lip and to just kind of weather the storms. The purpose is uh, the purpose of endurance is so that we can endure through the trials to be made perfect at the other end of them. Does that, does that make sense? He says in verse 3, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, but I'm glad there's a verse 4. And he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, says, let steadfastness. In other words, this is an encouragement to you to do something. It's not simply that God is going to do it. He's actually wanting you to place your hand in his hand so that you can walk through these things together and be made perfect and complete on the other side of them. In other words, the point is this. You also have to do something. God is committed not to waste your trial, but you also need to commit not to waste your trial. You have to join hands with God so that he can produce in you what he desires to produce. Colossians 128 says this. This is the reason why I preach, by the way. It's the reason why I preach. It says, Him we proclaim. Okay? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Okay? I'm with you. Him we proclaim. We do it for these reasons. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's a a goal to preaching. There's a goal to singing. There's a goal to reading Scripture here from the pulpit. It It is so that we might be presented before God perfect and complete, mature in Christ. The final end of our goal, the final purpose of our endurance is so that we can better see and know and savor Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the treasure. If the goal of our lives is to maximize our happiness, friends, we just simply will not sign up for biblical Christianity because it's too hard. The goal of our lives is not to maximize our own happiness. Simply. The goal of our lives is to find our happiness and joy in Christ. No matter what valleys, no matter what peaks he may take us through. He is the good treasure. If our goal is holiness then we can entrust ourselves to a good and loving God who will finish what he has started, and he has promised to be with us. I want to tell you something that I heard a friend of mine from college who's also a pastor. He's a pastor in North Carolina now. um, He he said this this week. I thought it was great. I don't want to take credit for it. If we sacrifice holiness to get happiness, we end up getting neither. But if we sacrifice happiness to get holiness, we end up getting both that make sense friends make your sacrifices wisely happiness is a is a terrible terrible goal but it's a great symptom and, and happiness and joy is usually the symptom of a life lived in christ there is happiness there is purpose for our lives there is joy but it is found by it's found by crucifying yourself and saying you know what the only thing that matters in this life is jesus christ and him crucified God is preparing a place for us at his table. We're heading for a meal in heaven with him at his house, in his family, let inside his gates. God himself took on flesh to make this possible. The son took on flesh so that he could take the wrath from God the father that we deserve. God the father turned the wrath that was headed for us. He turned it away onto his son so that we could be made whole, accepted. We could be given rest We're heading for a feast. Between here and there, there will be trouble. But Christians, those who have been converted, those who have passed from death to life, Christians are the ones who are saying, who are singing from their hearts, I believe that Christ is worth whatever pain may come. Can you say amen to that church? Amen. Amen. Let's pray that God would make us a church that would believe that and would live that. Would you pray with me? God, you're so good to us. You give us everything that we need for life and godliness. You have told us in your word that your schoolhouse is not always easy. Many times you desire to use the trials and the tribulations of of our own sin or of simply just living in a broken world, a Genesis 3 world, but you have told us that we can have this hope, that you will not waste any of it if we join hands with you. You will not waste any of it, and you will be with us. And and God, that's enough. That's enough. Thank you for that. Thank you that you will be with us. You will be near. It is not your desire to crush a bruised reed. It is not your desire to snuff out a faintly burning wick. You will be with us all the way to the end. Lord, give us this assurance. Would you confirm this truth in our hearts? Would you make yourself known and, and visible and seen To everyone in this room, those who are watching, Lord, I pray that if there is one here who has not found that you are worth it all, that they would today turn away from their sins, that they would receive what you have given, pardon, full atonement. How can it be? Lord, you have offered that to us through Christ. He took the punishment that we deserve. The wrath of God has been diverted off of us and on to the Son for everyone who would call on the name of Jesus Lord, I pray that you would do that work today among us. In the name of Jesus, amen.